Thank you for listening to the Abundant Life Sermon Podcast. Abundant Life is based out of Lee Summit, Missouri and has campuses throughout the Kansas City metro area and online. We want to see your life changed by Jesus. For more information about Abundant Life or for locations and service times, visit livingproof.co. Thanks for listening. Church, how about them? Chiefs, Super Bowl champions. Yeah. Hey, what makes a championship church? One of the things that makes a championship church in the eyes of God is generosity. I want to say thank you for living and giving so generously so we can do generous things for our city and not just locally but globally. So I've been told our food pantry right back behind our Lee Summit Auditorium is a food pantry here in Lee Summit. It serves about 500 families a week. Not individuals, families, because of your generosity, we're able to do that. But I've been told that the shelves are getting really low. Provisions are really, really low. So if you would consider maybe this week when you go to buy yourself some groceries, pick up another bag of groceries, drop them off the food pantry, it's going to help a lot of families this week. Thank you for helping us be living proof of a loving God. Yes, there are champions, and then there's also almost champions. So I mean no disrespect to the Eagles at all. I really, really don't. Jalen Hurts is a guy I've actually come to admire. Yes, I know Mahomes is a hometown hero, but I've come to admire Jalen Hurts, young man on the field, off the field, kind of a class act. And you know what the remarkable thing about Jalen Hurts Sunday night is he was an almost champion. I mean, think about this for a moment. If you follow football, the Eagles won the game in every single stat except for one of the scoreboard. Jalen Hurts played a near-perfect game. He actually outplayed Patrick Mahomes. He threw for more yards. He rushed for more yards. He had more first downs. Uh, Their offense completely controlled the time of possession. I mean, he played a near-perfect game. He was an almost champion except for one play. Just one play. One time. He fumbled the ball away. A church I'm opening up with this. Because the reality, just like there are almost champions, the world is also full of almost Christians. The church is full of almost Christians, almost but not quite. And today I want to talk about a man in history that really lived from Acts chapter 26. If you have a copy of God's Word, Acts chapter 26, a real man in history that really lived. I call him the almost Christian. He was King Herod Agrippa II. In Acts chapter 26, as we're studying the book of Acts and we're looking at the leadership principles from these early Christian leaders, we're now specifically on the leadership life of the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 26, what we're about to read It takes place right here in this theater. You can still go there today, and if you go on the Holy Land tour with us to Israel, you will stand in this very place. We're going in December, and it was in this very theater in the ancient city of Caesarea. What happens is the Apostle Paul is on house arrest. He's been on house arrest for two years in the city of Caesarea. Caesarea was the capital of the ancient Roman province of Judea. And so King Agrippa, the puppet king of the Jews, makes a diplomatic trip to Caesarea to welcome the new governor, a man in history by the name of Festus. And it's here that he hears about Paul, who's been on house arrest. And he wants to meet him personally, wants to hear from him personally. And the apostle Paul is in chains. He's been imprisoned for no other reason except that he's a Christian. 
Now here's what's amazing to me. As you study the life of the Apostle Paul, Paul had a singular focus. He was all about the gospel. Every decision he made was about advancing the gospel. What's remarkable to me about this story is it actually begins several chapters earlier in Acts chapter 21. The Holy Spirit warned him, Paul, if you go down to Jerusalem, the Jews are going to try to assassinate you. They're going to wrongly accuse you. They're going to imprison you and maybe even kill you. He is warned ahead of time what's going to happen if he goes. But Paul says in Acts 21 verse 13, I am prepared to be put in chains and if need be, give my life for the name of the Lord Jesus. This was a man that was fully prepared to not only go to prison for being a Christian, but die a horrible martyr's death. And exactly as it been warned, that's what happened. Now what happens is the Jews are trying to lynch him. And so the Romans decide, we got to get him out of town. Let's send him to Caesarea. Caesarea is about a two days travel by horseback or by chariot. And so it's here that he's been on house arrest for the last two years, this, the city of Caesarea. You see, the Romans have a problem. They don't have any charges on Paul. They, they know they ought to let him go, but if they let him go, the Jews are going to riot. And then that's an even bigger problem. And so they don't know what to do with him. In Acts chapter 26, the apostle Paul now gets an audience with Agrippa. He comes right to the end of his message. He's making a defense. In essence, he's preaching a gospel sermon that Jesus died for our sin, that he rose again, and he gets right to the end of that sermon. He put himself in that position to deliver that message, and here's the reason why. Spirit-led leaders know the gospel is the only hope for the human soul. Church, there's a lot of things that have changed in 2,000 years. Since the time of the Apostle Paul, a lot of things have changed. A lot of things are no longer the same. We live in a changing world that's changing even more. Seems it's changing faster than ever. But I want you to know, in a world that is forever changing, there's one thing that will never change. There's still one thing that is still the same. There's only one hope for the human soul. There's only one hope for the human heart. There's only one thing that can alter the destiny of men and women eternally. It's still that old time gospel that Christ died for our sins that he was buried, but three days later he rose from the dead and he's alive forevermore. That is the one thing that will never change. Nothing else matters. And the apostle Paul knew there's only one thing that can change the destiny of a person's life and the trajectory eternally, and it is the gospel. He comes to the end of the sermon he preaches in this theater to an audience of one, though there were hundreds of people in that theater that day, he over and over again calls Agrippa by name. And do you understand there are hundreds of people here in this Lee Summit Auditorium, but in the eyes of God, you're the only one here. You may be sitting wherever you are in the world with other people in that living room, in that space, maybe a dozen, maybe hundreds, it matters not. Today, you need to know that of all the people in this world, God is seeing you personally. He's calling your name personally. Today, you're the only one that he sees. And the apostle Paul would come to the end of that sermon and look at what Agrippa would say in Acts 26, 28. It says, then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Yes, the world is full of almost champions. But worse yet, the world is full of almost Christians. The Apostle Paul says, Paul, you almost persuade me. And I would consider these some of the saddest words in all of the Bible because this is a real person that really lived, that on this day he had an opportunity to redefine his destiny eternally, but he fumbled it away. You almost persuade me. 
And for the last 2,000 years, this man who really lived, known as King Herod Agrippa II, though he was a man that was wealthy materially, he has been bankrupt spiritually, and he will be now eternally. And I can only imagine in his memory, as he remembers this day, in Acts chapter 26, and he hears those words he said over and over again, almost, 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 I almost made it into heaven. Church, listen carefully. The reality is the almost Christian is one who was never really a Christian at all. And I'm convinced under the sound of my voice, there are some among us that are almost Christians, but not quite Christians. We've not quite stepped over the line. We've come right up to the line, but we're still hanging out and we're holding on. We're wrestling with God, but we won't give up. We won't give in. We've almost came to him and put our faith in him, but not quite. And I want you to understand what that means. The almost Christian is not really a Christian at all. It might be somebody that's been baptized, but never really born again. You profess Christ, but you don't really possess Christ. Somebody who has religion, but they don't know the joy of redemption. Listen carefully. I want you to examine yourself today. This sermon isn't for anybody else but you. Like I know right now you're going, man, I wish so-and-so was here. They need to hear this. Yeah, yeah, I hope, I hope. Pay attention. Now, you know what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5? You know what it says? Examine yourself whether you be in the faith. It's not about examining other people whether they're Christians. It says examine yourself whether you be in the faith. Examine yourself whether or not you be disqualified. We need to have some self-examination, some personal introspection. We need to take heaven's entrance exam. Are you really a Christian? And if today you honestly ask that question, the Spirit of God's gonna reveal your true condition spiritually. And it's the most important thing you'll ever know and ever do eternally because the reality is the almost Christian is someone who was never really a Christian at all. And what that means is the almost Almost Christian is one who almost made it into heaven, but not quite. Almost made it into heaven. Do you understand? To almost get to heaven is 100% making it into hell. And for the last 2,000 years, that has been the place and the space of King Agrippa, who almost became a Christian. Paul, you almost persuade me. But on that day, he fumbled. It away, And I want to talk today about four reasons why Agrippa was an almost Christian because these same four reasons persist today in this place. For some of us right here under the sound of my voice, four reasons why people almost become Christians but not quite. Number one is this. There's the seduction of sin. The seduction of sin. The seduction, the deception, the distortion of sin. Desiring personal gratification not understanding that it leads to our long-term devastation. The wages of sin is death. There are no exceptions. It may take years and years and years and years, but eventually there's a payday someday. And this man in history known as Agrippa II is under the seduction of sin. Let's pick it up in Acts 25, 13. And after some days, King Agrippa and Bernice came to Caesarea to greet Festus. So this is a diplomatic trip. He comes up from Jerusalem, about a two days travel by chariot or by horseback. He wants to meet the new governor, a man we know in history as Festus. 
He is the successor of the previous governor, a man known in history as Felix. Caesarea was a port city, a very beautiful city of prosperity and wealth. It was the rich and the famous that lived there. It is the home to the Roman governor. It's the capital of the province of Judea. So this is a diplomatic trip. And it's there that this this Roman governor realizes, I've got a problem I've inherited from my predecessor uh, by the name of Paul. This guy, Paul, he's this Jewish guy named Paul, and the Jews want to kill him. I mean, they want him him bad. I don't really understand the situation. And so he brings up Paul to Agrippa, who himself is a Jew. He's the puppet king of the Jews. The Romans, when they would conquer a people, they would set up a puppet king of those people, and that king would then kind of control the people. So that's Agrippa II. And so he brings up his problem to Agrippa going, hey, Matt, you're a Jew. Tell me what you think I ought to do with this guy named Paul. And so Agrippa says, hey, I'd like to hear this Paul personally. I've heard of him. I'd kind of like to meet him. Uh, set up a meeting where I can personally talk to him. So that's what happens. Look at verse 22. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. So Festus, the governor, says, tomorrow you shall hear him. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at Festus's command, Paul was brought in. Now, I've highlighted this name, Bernice. Bernice was the wife or the live-in girlfriend of this man named Agrippa. You say, so what? So this. We know a lot about Bernice historically. There's a lot of the record historically about her outside of the Bible. These are real people that really lived. What we know is Bernice was the oldest daughter. She was a princess and the oldest daughter of King Agrippa I. She's now living with King Agrippa II. Do I need to draw you a picture? They are living in an immoral, incestuous, sinful, sexual relationship. We know a lot about Bernice. She actually had married her uncle previously. Her uncle died. She marries a man named Polymon. She divorces Polymon and runs into the arms of her lover brother. Everybody say, ooh, that's gross. That's gross. Thank you. I was hoping I wasn't alone. Now watch this. We think that's gross. Really sleeping with your sister? Disgusting. But listen carefully. To God, who is holy, who is sinless, all sin is gross. All sin is gross. See, we think that's gross. But to God, all sin is gross. He's holy, he's sinless, he's perfect. He blazes and burns with righteousness and perfection. It's easy to judge somebody else's sin. Oh, that's gross, but listen carefully. It's no different in the eyes of God than that woman who says she's a Christian, but she's sleeping with her boyfriend. No different in the eyes of God than that man who says he's a Christian, but he's looking at pornography. See, to God, it's all gross. And we live in a time where we kind of shape our moral worldview through cliches. This is what you hear all the time today. Well, love is love. You've heard that before. Love is love. The implication being, as long as you love someone, it doesn't matter who they are, you can sleep with them. Love is love. Think about where that ends. Not only is that unbiblical, it is illogical. If love is love, and that is not how we define what is morally right from what is morally wrong, then who's to say it's wrong that Bernice would be having sex with her brother? Well, we love each other. Love is love. 
Do you see the illogical conclusions that we have drawn today as a civilization? See, it knows no end. When you redefine what is right from wrong for one group of people or anyone, eventually it knows no end. You've got to redefine it for everyone. And so it is for this man in history, Agrippa, who's in a sexual relationship with his sister. You see, Agrippa was an almost Christian because he knew following Jesus would mean relinquishing his sinful lifestyle. Listen, you can follow your sin or you can follow him, but you cannot follow both. And we need to have some gospel clarity because even within modern American churchianity, I didn't say Christianity, I said churchianity. We don't have gospel clarity. For a lot of churches and a lot of Christians, the gospel goes something like this. God loves you just the way you are, so you don't need to change a thing. I mean, God loves you just the way you are, so you can follow Jesus and stay just like you are. No, that is the almost gospel, which makes almost Christians. See, the gospel is not God loves you just the way you are so you can stay just as you are. No, here's the gospel. The gospel says God loves you just the way you are. Amen? You can come to him just as you are. Amen? But if indeed you do, you will not stay just as you are. He will change you. You don't get to stay as you are, even though you may come as you are. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, which means if you still are what you were, you probably ain't. You can't stay the way you are and come to Jesus. Now listen, it doesn't mean you won't struggle with sin. We all struggle with sin. It's part of our fallen human condition. Don't misunderstand. Just because you come and be a Christian doesn't mean you're going to somehow get to sinless perfection, not here if that happens in heaven. As a pastor, I don't worry about people who say, Phil, I'm a Christian. I know I'm a Christian, but I struggle with sin. Of course you do. We all do. The people I worry about are people who claim to be a Christian, but when they sin, there is no struggle. They have found somehow compatibility between their sin and the Savior, and these are not compatible. That means there ought to be a struggle. It's one thing to struggle with sin. It's another thing to revel in it and embody it and embrace it and think that sin is compatible with Jesus. It's not. If indeed you've been born again, you have the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit lives in you, which means when you sin, there will be tension. There will be conviction. There's going to be a struggle, which means if you can sin and win— You need to question, am I really one of his? Am I really a Christian or am I an almost Christian? You see, you have this man in history that was under the seduction of sin. For some of us here, the reason why you have not yet let go and fully embraced the Lord Jesus Christ is because you like sleeping with your boyfriend. It's true. Now, you know, I'm not judging you. Listen, there's a time in my life I felt the same way. I mean, as a young adult, as the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15, living in the pig pen of sin. You know, the Bible is so honest, it's so pragmatic. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 9 says sin is pleasurable for a season. It is. That's why we do it. There's that instant gratification. 
And that was me for a season of my life, living in sin because of the personal gratification. I understand the tension, I really do. This is what kept me from fully selling out and fully giving in. I was hanging on, I was holding out because I liked my sin, I was having too much fun. But do you understand, sin always brings a payday. You can sin, but you cannot win. You may have a blast, but it will not last. Sin is not your friend. It will always lead to destruction. And the reason God hates sin is because he loves you. He loves you so deeply, so infinitely, which is why he hates sin, because he knows ultimately it leads to devastation. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23. There are no exceptions, no exemption. This man today has been destroyed eternally, living in hell eternally, forever and ever and ever under the wages of sin because he could not let go and he would not give in. He was under the seduction of sin. Number two is this, because of the power of pride. The power of pride. This was a king. He sat on a throne. And did you know that every single one of us as human beings have a throne? We all want to be kings over our little kingdoms and queens over our little queendoms. And only one person gets to sit on that throne. And none of us want to relinquish that throne to the king of kings. See, we want to hang on to that throne. That's what's going on here with this little puppet king by the name of Agrippa. Look at what it says in verse 23. So the next day, when Agrippa and Bernice had come with great pomp and had entered the auditorium with the commanders and the prominent men of the city. At Festus's command, Paul was brought in. Now, I want you to get the picture. I showed you a picture of the theater. Hundreds of people are there. It's probably standing room only. And like any politician, he sees a chance for a photo op, a chance to be seen among the prominent people of the city. And with great pomp, it says, with great ceremony, he enters in. And you have this man, Agrippa, who loved the applause of men. He loved the adulation of men. And he walks in, here ye, here ye, comes the king. And everybody stands up and gives him a standing ovation as he walks down the middle of this crowd with great pomp and great ceremony. And do you understand, this man had a position of privilege and power, prosperity and popularity. But do you know that while he had power over people. It was actually the people that had power over him. He was an almost Christian because he feared other people's opinions and losing his position. I talked last week about the fear of God versus the fear of men. See, if you live in the fear of man, the Bible describes the fear of man as being controlled by people's opinion. And now you have this man of position and we would say today, he's fearful of being canceled. Like if I become a follower of Jesus, now all of a sudden people aren't going to applaud for me. They're not going to stand for me. I won't have the affirmation, the attention, the long royal robes of prosperity and royalty. Do you understand that he was deeply fearful on this day as every single eye that was there is watching him. As Paul continually called him by name, Agrippa, you called this meeting. I know there's other people here, but you're the one that called this meeting, so I'm going to talk to you personally. And as Paul was doing that, he could feel all the eyes upon him of all all these prominent people, and he was fearful of what it would mean to truly follow Jesus. And for some of us here, the reason we haven't quite sold out and crossed the line from death to life is we're fearful of people's opinion. 
We're fearful of losing our position, our status among men. But you know what doesn't end there? There's the influence of family. The influence of family. This is the fourth in a line of kings called the Herodian kings, the Herodian dynasty. Uh, Agrippa II's great-grandfather was Herod the Great. He's the one that had all the baby boys murdered in Bethlehem under the age of two at the time of Christ's birth. Then there was Herod Antipas. That was this man's uncle. Herod Antipas is the one that had John the Baptist murdered because John the Baptist had the backbone to look in the eyes of this little puppet king and say, it's wrong to have your brother's wife. And because of that, Herod Antipas would have him beheaded. And then you have Agrippa II's father, Herod Agrippa I. That was the Agrippa that actually martyred and murdered the apostle James, the apostle of the Lord Jesus. You see this man's entire family history history is anti-Christ and anti-Christian. They have persecuted Christians for four generations. And for this man to admit that Jesus is the way, he would also have to admit that his family had been wrong. And church, I talk to a lot of people. This is one of the number one reasons people never follow Jesus, because they don't want to be ostracized by their family. I mean, if this really is true, and even though I think it is true, where does that leave my grandma? Where does that leave my grandpa? Where does that leave my mother? Where does that leave my father? And so your allegiance to family is greater than your allegiance to the one that wants to redeem you eternally. And this is the cost that Jesus said. He put it this way in Matthew 10, one of the hard sayings of Jesus. Someday I'm going to do a whole series just on the hard sayings of Jesus. You know why? Because everybody likes the happy sayings. It was amazing how few people quote the hard things. Jesus said a lot of hard things. And here's one of the hard things Jesus said. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You know what Jesus is saying? The gospel is divisive. And if you choose to embrace the truth, sometimes you'll even be divided from your own family, ostracized by your own family. He's come to bring a sword. What does that mean? Division. Now here's what's amazing about Jesus. He both united and he divided. He still does to this day. What brings us together, what's amazing to me about our church, and while this church is becoming more of a beautiful bride every day, is the diversity of this body, this bride. I mean, it's bringing people together from all types of places and different backgrounds and spaces, from rural Cass County, Missouri, to the urban core of Kansas City, from Quebec, Canada, to Atlanta, Georgia. What's remarkable is that is, in fact, the early church. This is what happened, Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. It's Jesus that brings us together, not our hobbies. It's not, it's not the chiefs. Listen, chiefs kingdom, yes, but what matters is our you part of Jesus' kingdom. See, we're part of Jesus' kingdom. That's what brings us together from all these different backgrounds and spaces. And Jesus said, I've come to bring a sword, metaphorically. It's divisive. The truth is divisive. Now, Christians today have to figure out what to go to war over and, and what not to. I mean, really, 
Too much of the time we turn our swords on each other instead of together turning them on the enemy, the adversary, whose name is Say. I'm telling you, if the Apostle Paul were alive today, he would be getting criticized for his sermon on Mars Hill in front of a pagan Greek audience because he quoted a pagan Greek poet. Paul's abandoned the Bible. He's watered it down. Did you hear the Apostle Paul? He quoted a pagan Greek, unbelieving poet. I can't believe it. No, he knew his audience. He was connecting the gospel to an unbelieving pagan audience. He was building a bridge for the truth. He got everybody there going, oh, okay, yeah. Let me know more. This still has to be how we do it today. We're not living in the America of our grandparents and great-grandparents. We're living at a time that's increasingly unbelieving. Pagan America, which means we need each other now more than ever. Well, what Jesus was simply teaching is sometimes if you follow him, it's going to ostracize you even from members of your own household. Krista was raised, my wife, in a very, very religious home, religious tradition, deep religious affiliation. She knew religion, but she'd never been taught about redemption. As a young adult, she got rebaptized when it was her decision. Her father at the time told her she'd been brainwashed. She was like the black sheep of the family. And for some of us here, that's the price of following Jesus. You see, it's more than simply the influence of family, it's the ruse of religion. This man, Agrippa II, was under the ruse of religion. You look at the whole text. As the Apostle Paul begins his sermon, he looks at Agrippa and says, Agrippa, I'm glad you're here. Acts 26 and verse 3, because I know you're an expert in Jewish customs and questions and tradition. You see, Agrippa was not irreligious. He was very religious. He was steeped in his Jewish tradition, his Jewish religion. Agrippa was an almost Christian because to follow Jesus meant rejecting his religious tradition. And for some of us, we're under the ruse of religion. You know you're under the deception and the distortion of religion if you're putting your hope in heaven in a list of things you've got to do. That, by definition, is religion. Do this, do this, do this. Yeah, Jesus is important, but i got to do this too. What does it say in Titus 3 and verse 5? Not by works of righteousness we have done, but by his mercy he has saved us. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Romans Chapter 5 and verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. No, you don't get to heaven based on what you do for God. You get to heaven based solely on what the Son of God has done for you when you put your faith exclusively and completely in what Jesus did for you at Calvary. The hard sayings of Jesus, I call these the scariest verses in the Bible. Scary because these verses do not refer to atheists, agnostics, people that hated God. No, these are people who are very religious. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Lord, Lord, I served that abundant life, and I served in the nursery once a month. Lord, Lord, I sang on the choir. I sang once a month. I held a microphone. Lord, Lord, didn't you see what I did? I 
sang, I served, I went out to love KC, and I put some new landscape in for somebody. Lord, really, seriously? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness, scariest verses in the Bible. These are almost Christians. They almost got into heaven, but they didn't get into heaven. We know exactly where they go. Jesus was very, very clear, Matthew 25, 46. These will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Somebody says, oh, I don't like that fire and brimstone preaching. Well, you're gonna get it anyway. <laughs> Jesus thought you needed it. These are the words of Jesus, not Pastor Phil. Now, we live at a time where we wanna change the Bible, and again, a lot of Christians, a lot of fake teachers, false prophets and preachers and, and theologians, they wanna say, well, no, no, hell is just allegorical. It's not real, it's just symbolic. Listen, if you've got a symbolic hell, then you've got a symbolic heaven. Because Jesus described them both in exactly the same way, eternal and everlasting. You don't get this without getting this. Either it's both true or none of it's true. Jesus is the one that came out of the grave. He resurrected from the dead. I'm gonna stick with Jesus. I think he knows. And he talked four times more about hell than he did about heaven. It must be real. This is how he described it in Mark 9, 44, that hell's where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I don't have time to even elaborate on all the implications, but the wages of sin is death. What that means is it is not annihilationism. It's not like you die if you don't go to heaven and you're just, it's like you never lived. No, it's living eternally in a state of death in a place that Jesus described as hell. 2,000 years later, Agrippa is still very much alive but he's eternally dead under the wages of sin. And I want you to know that today, hell is full of almost Christians. Agrippa is an almost Christian. And for the last 2,000 years, according to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, he has his memory. He can remember. He knows who he is. He knows where he came from. He remembers this day in Acts chapter 26 where he almost became a Christian. And for 2,000 years, I'm telling you, all he can think about is almost, 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 almost. I almost became a Christian. I almost got into heaven. But almost getting into heaven is 100% getting into hell. He says, Paul, you almost persuade me. Paul closes his sermon like this. Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also who he, all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. Church, God loved you enough to send a gospel preacher today as God loved Agrippa so much to send a gospel preacher in his day. And I would do absolutely anything today that you would almost and all together step over the line and become a Christian. 
define your destination. I would give almost anything for that to happen, but whatever I would give would be insufficient. It wouldn't matter. Because there's only one person who had what it took and gave what he gave. His name is Jesus. Today, all you have to do is say yes to Jesus. Today is the day. And the Holy Spirit of God right now is revealing your condition personally. Almost a Christian or absolutely a Christian. Don't fumble the ball away. Don't fumble the ball away. Jalen Hurts played an almost perfect game. You could live an almost perfect life and today fumble the chance away. The greatest tragedy is to almost get into heaven only to die and go completely to hell. Would you bow with me? Every person here, I pray. Every person online, every church house, all the other campuses. I want you to take a moment for honest reflection. Seriously, please. Honest introspection. Do you know absolutely your destiny eternally? Do you know today if you died where you would be? With every head bowed, every eye closed, everywhere. I want to ask you this question on a scale of one to ten. How certain are you that your home is heaven? I don't mean I hope it's heaven or I wonder if it's heaven. I think it's heaven. I'm almost certain. No, I'm not. I'm saying on a scale of one to ten. Are you or aren't you? One being, I know for sure if I died, I would not go to heaven. Ten being, I know for sure if I died, without question, my destination is heaven. Where are you? One, ten, or somewhere in between? Now listen, if you said anything other than ten, you're an almost Christian. Well, I'm a seven or I'm an eight. You're almost, but not quite. And I'm going to pray for us right now. But before I do, I want to pray for you. And if you'd be honest enough today, say, Phil, I, I don't know for sure, not absolutely. I don't know with certainty my destiny eternally. Would you slip up your hand right now? Hold it high in the air. I want to pray for you. Nobody's watching. Nobody's looking but me and Jesus. He's the only one that matters. Other campuses, online, I can't see you, but Jesus can. That's all that matters. It's between you and him right now. Don't fumble it away. Hold your hand up high. I want to pray for you right now. Just hold it up high in the air. God in heaven, you see these hands, these precious men and women. And I pray that today would be the day of salvation. That they would let go of all that is for all that could be and all that will be. That they would not trade time for eternity. 
What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Jesus, today you told us about a man who had the whole world, but he lost his soul. God, that not one among us today would fumble this opportunity away. If you have your hand in the air, wherever you are, I want you to look up at me right now. Just look up at me. Hold your hand in the air. We're about to stand. We're about to sing. And as we do, I want you to immediately get out of your seat. If you're in Lee Summit, come meet me at this platform right here. I want to pray for you personally. We're going to do this together right here, right now. If you're at another campus, Blue Springs Independence, your campus pastor is already on the platform. Going to meet you right there. Church houses, you've got a church house leader to minister the gospel to you. If you're online and you're all by yourself, Kyle Worsham, our pastor, is going to talk to you personally in just a minute about what to do next. God in heaven, I pray that now you would draw the net on the souls of men and women. In Jesus' name. Amen. Come quickly, come quickly. Let's stand together. Let's sing. And I'm so glad I met Jesus. Didn't know what I needed. Oh, but now that I've seen him, I have nothing left to hide. And I'm so glad. have come today to drive a stake in the ground and say, Jesus, I want you. I'm going to define my destination. No more almost Christian. Would you give it up for them right now? Are you excited? Praise be to God. You know what Jesus taught? That all of heaven rejoices. There is a party going on in heaven over you right now. There really is. And we could not be more thrilled. I'm going to lead you right now in a simple prayer of faith. There's no magic in these words because what matters most is your heart. God sees your heart. In a simple prayer of faith, God will hear your prayer. He'll forgive your sin right here. He'll redefine your forever. So I want you to simply repeat this after me as I pray. Would you do that? Dear Jesus, I know that I've sinned, that I cannot get to heaven apart from you, but I believe you died for my sin, that you rose again, and today I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I receive you by faith. Come into my life. Change me from within. Thank you for giving me new life eternal life for loving me so infinitely. Now help me to follow you 
until I see you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you give it up for them today? Praise be to our wonderful God. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure and subscribe and share with a friend. We hope today's message inspired and challenged you. Let's go be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. For more information about Abundant Life, visit livingproof.co or follow us on social media at Abundant Life LS.